could go and get 40s. Fuck going to that party. Oh, really? Your folks are away now? All right, let's go. You've convinced me. Kiss me now that I'm older. I won't try to control you. Friday nights have been lonely. Take it slow, but don't warn me. You are listening to Down on High, where two millennial musicians talk about the cultural products that shape them. And today we are finally talking about one New York band, The Strokes. It's been a long time coming, and we are covering all of the records of The Strokes in our mini-series here, starting with their debut. The 2001 record, Is This It? And the sophomore follow-up from 2003, Room on Fire. The Strokes, formed in New York City in 1998, are a rock band that gained prominence in the early 2000s, and they are credited with revitalizing garage rock and indie music. Greg, when did you first hear The Strokes? I'm not sure when I first heard the Strokes. Um, they have a lot of parallels in in music that so I. So it didn't click. It didn't. It wasn't a bomb going off when you first heard the Strokes, Greg. You didn't say, uh, "Oh my God, I've seen the future of of rock music." You said, "I've seen one more song on rock rock band for the PlayStation." Is is that? Yeah, that might have been it. You know, I'm not even so okay. sure. I I. Yeah, the the only song that I um, think that I recognize is Reptilia. Um, but even then, I'm not sure that I recognize it from um, Guitar Hero or, or anything like that. I, I actually, It just might be a part of like playlists. You know, like sometimes if you let sure. iTunes music run after listening to the White Stripes or Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, a Stroke song will come up. Um, yeah, I don't. it's not necessarily too memorable for me because, you know, while you often compare the import uh, of the White Stripes to the Strokes and vice versa. Peanut um, butter and jelly, baby. Yeah, I just, that they just didn't go in tandem for me. Um, when I was listening to the White Stripes, uh, they described their, the music of their past inspirations more than their contemporaries. Um, and so the only contemporaries I was really aware of uh for the white stripes were the folks that they actively toured with like the hives and um the yeah yeah yeah's um well, so like, i look I get i get that the white stripes are saying we're influenced by blind willie mctell and sunhouse but the strokes were often compared to the velvet underground and and early proto-punk bands like that so it's not as though one band has these deep roots in the soil of American popular music, and the other band is this flash in the pan, you know. No, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying. Act. I'm not even saying that. What I'm saying right. is like, it's not as if like uh, they were like, oh, the the, the White Stripes um, really enjoyed. Uh, uh, I don't know something more contemporary. Let's say the Pixies, and then and then you know, Strokes might say like, we came. Um, with influences from the Pixies. I don't even really know what the influences of the Strokes are. I'm just saying that, like, at least that I didn't witness any conversation about them having mutual inspirations. Like, 
I think that's that they true. Were sort of they do not. Can, they are not cut from the same cloth. You're right about that. Yeah. And, and so I think I just, if if I have heard many times that members of the Strokes were big fans of Pearl Jam and Nirvana, which is not something you would necessarily associate with their band. Fair um, enough. I now the narrative about the Strokes is that the Strokes arrive and and the journalistic, you know, industrial complex more or less immediately gravitates towards bands like the White Stripes and the Strokes and the Hives, or famously the Vines with their Rolling Stone cover, Rock is Back, and sort of seizes on this narrative that new metal is going to be killed, new metal and teen pop are going to die at the hands of Garage Rock Revival. And I think it was maybe based around the same narrative of Nirvana, and Pearl Jam and bands like that, like grunge killing hair metal. And in this case, the strokes were Nirvana and, uh, that would make uh corn poison or something <laughs> or warrant. Uh, I, I think that narrative's a little too pat, uh, because the strokes never sold any records and the white stripes certainly didn't have a diamond seller. And however successful these bands were, they were kind of living off of the fumes of the last, they are kind of the last gasp of this kind of music coming out of the major label system. Uh, they took the last gulp of that CD money and and drank it down. Fair enough. There are famous stories of like, uh, and I think we're going to, I'm going to use a lot of references from Lizzie Goodman's book, uh, the um, anthology uh, of this garage rock period called meet me in the bathroom but there are stories and i don't know if they're in that book about like when interpol first put out their first record you know there's a listening party at the ritz and there's like champagne and caviar and when interpol's second record comes out it's like somebody had a box of ritz and they put it on in a boom box at the holiday inn like that major label cd money that that was still around in 2001 but by 2005 not so much. Uh, uh, I mean, the best-selling record of, like, say, 2002 was Eminem's The Eminem Show, right? So there are still big records in this period, but they are being bootlegged pretty significantly on things like Napster and LimeWire really fast. And I think right. that's part of your my story and your story as a music listener as well. The transition from physical media to uh to stealing music <laughs> <laughs> on the internet well but so this is a really interesting time and they are uh, loosely categorized as saviors of rock uh by both uh, some of the american press and some of the uk press and uh uh so the I'll just give a little background the band forms a, a, a loose confederation of the band without Albert Hammond Jr the rhythm guitarist uh forms up in 1997 they do some loose practices uh so Casablancas and lead guitarist um lead guitarist Nick Valenci drummer Fabio um uh, these guys are getting together. Uh, Nick, the lead guitarist, says, I remember what Julian was wearing the first day I met him in middle school. Blue jeans and a white button-down shirt. The shirt had the name of his former school on it, which was funny to me that he wore the uniform of his old school on the first day of his new school. I was 13. He was 15. 
He also says, right away, Julia and I started making music together. We started writing songs basically right away. Casablancas would comment on this period saying, eventually I dropped out of school to go study music. I was flunking. I was always terrible at school. I left and got a GED and went down to Five Towns, which was a vocational music school. Uh, I learned a lot there. Drummer Fabio comments, Nikolai, the bassist, was always around. Julian has this very attractive way of being, even on a subconscious level. People run the risk of wanting to bend towards his wishes. And at the time, the way I saw it, uh, bassist Nikolai was the only one who Julian would bend to. That changed, but I remember Nikolai's school got out later than ours, and Julian would wait around for what seemed like a long time for him to come home and just hang out. And so there's this confederation of those guys, and then Albert Hammond Jr. is kind of the interloper. At the end of 1998, the group invited Albert Hammond Jr. to come play with them. He had just moved to New York City and reconnected with Casablancas, who he'd known from a stint at a private boarding school. Uh, lead guitarist Valencia says, Albert moved to New York with a credit card that his dad paid for. Uh, Hammond says, when I told him I was leaving college, I was like, I'm kind of scared, but you know, we have this chance. His, uh, his dad, oddly enough, did the same thing for him. His dad, who had no money, bought him amps and guitars uh, for the whole band. So maybe I feel like he was paying it forward. Valencia says, when it came to getting gear, those little things that are necessary in a band can add up. Guitar strings, cables. This guy needs a bunch of drumsticks because he keeps breaking them. We need a PA for the rehearsal room. It doesn't seem like a lot, but I didn't have guitar strings or guitar cables. And now all of a sudden we did. I'm very grateful and appreciative to Albert Hammond Sr. for paying those cre- fuck- fucking credit card bills. Uh... So the band hooks up with a producer named, uh, pardon me, with a, a manager named Ryan Gentles, uh, a first-time manager. He's never managed a band before. Uh, and they hook up with a producer uh, in New York, Gordon Raphael, who in 2000 records their first EP. It, it features a bunch of songs that show up on Is This It, but it's even more lo-fi than the actual debut. So Ryan Gentles says... Uh, of this period, the Modern Age EP came out in the UK on Rough Trade in 2001, basically right at the end of their mini tour of the UK. While we were in the UK, Doves, the they're sort of Doves is sort of in that class of 2001 with like post Radiohead bands like Coldplay. Uh, Doves asked us to open for them as their main support on the upcoming US tour, which would be going uh, in February and March. So when we got home, we went on tour supporting them. Uh, just to give you an idea of where this band was at, they've, they put out an EP, haven't even made an album and Kate Moss shows up at some of their U UK shows. So supermodels are sh- coming to the shows before the record is out. Uh, uh, manager Ryan Gentle says the RCA guys had flown to Toronto to see the band on that doves tour. That's when Steve Relbowski and Jack Rovner made their big impression. So they're courting major labels He says, I didn't choose the label, but I did do this. I said, I like Interscope. I like Epic. I like RCA. I broke down to negotiations to see who I could get, and I was pitting them against each other to see who would give us what we wanted out of the deal. Because all Julian, Julian Casablancas, the singer, knows is that he wants to make records. I knew that I wanted to own Is This It, the first record, and I asked the labels, can we own the record? I don't want to give it to you. You can release it, but we want to own it. 
Two of them said no, and one of them said yes, and that's who we signed with. All the other deal points were identical. We might have taken a little less from RCA on some deal points because I wanted the record. We own it. We can release it if we want. Anniversary edition. It's all ours. We can put it on our own label. It belongs to us. Not even Elvis or the Beatles own their records. So they're doing this tour. Uh, They're putting out an EP. And then comes time to record. And when they come times to record after they've signed with RCA Records, a major record label, they sit down and try and record with Gil Norton, a famous producer of the Pixies Doolittle, uh, 80s alternative band, the Pixies. They recorded their first record, Surfer Rosa, with Steve Albini, who would go on to produce Nirvana's In Utero. But their second record, really their breakthrough record, their kind of pop rock breakthrough, was recorded by this guy, Gil Norton, so they record three songs with him. And this is something I think we're going to see in other places in the Stroke story. It's a, it doesn't sound right. So they ditch all those sessions and they go back to the guy from New York who recorded the demo. Um, uh, so of Is This It, uh, uh, the manager, Ryan, Ryan uh, Gentle's comments, um, the Strokes recorded from the time they got back from some of their supporting dates in the spring all the way through the summer, well before the deal with RCA was even done. We were re- recording the album anyway, using money from a publishing deal that we had signed earlier in the year. Not that we needed that. I think the whole album cost 20 k all in, not including the advance paid to Gil Norton, of course, which came from the label eventually. Uh, Gordon is such a great interpreter. So... Gordon, uh, this guy that they recorded with, who recorded the demo, Ryan states, Gordon is such a great interpreter of musicians. Julian would say, that hi-hat is too trebly. Turn the bass up or the treble down. He'll say, I need the hi-hat to sound like a rich guy who hangs out at a party and doesn't talk to girls, waits for them to come to him, talk to him. And Gordon is like, okay. That's almost verbatim how I've heard him describe a hi-hat sound. It sounds too much like the way a sleeping bum smells on a Friday night when he's had too much booze. I don't want it to smell like that. Gussy it up and shave him. That's the snare drum sound I want. He talks in analogies like that, and Gordon understands him. So Casablanca, around the time of the release, said that, is this it? He wanted it to sound like a band from the past that took a trip into the future to make their record. The band said they wanted things to sound lo-fi, so there was... The only effects they used were distortion and reverse echo. The miking scheme for the drum kit included only three microphones, one above, one on the bass drum, and one in the corner of the studio. Uh, It gave it this very kind of compressed sound. And I think that's something we're going to talk about is the lack of dynamics on this record. It really is kind of really compressed, really tight. It looks like a a brick on a waveform. There's no quiet and loud. It's all one dynamic. Uh, the record, the guitars were recorded using Fender DeVille amps on opposite sides of the room. Uh, Raphael positioned a mic on each of them. And then the sound was fed directly into a preamp with no equalization. Uh, the band played to a click track track, which makes sense because some of the drum parts sound like drum machines they are so tight. Um, and then Casablanca sings through a PV practice amp. So that's where we get this kind of distortion on the vocals the very, again, lo-fi quality. Um, one of the other weird controversies of the record is that while they were basically getting ready to put it out, 9-11 happened. So they had this track, New York City Cops, that's on the record. And suddenly 
they're having to think about what to do with that track. Uh, Albert Hammond Jr., rhythm guitarist, says, Our album was coming out September 24th. Suddenly, people were talking about taking New York City cops off the record. Lead guitarist Valencia says, We drank and played and worked on new music on 9-11 and also discussed what's going on with this whole New York City cops debacle. There was so much going on, all the cops and firefighters who had just died. We didn't want to be insensitive. And they tell the anecdote. Uh, Hammond Jr. says, we were like, no, no, no. And Julian was like, it's just a song. I don't care. It had nothing to do with that. At the time, though, people were hysterical. So uh, the the band is is the Strokes. The record is Is This It, the most important debut of the 2000s. The White Stripes did not debut in the 2000s, so we don't have to have that argument because they came out in 99. The record kicks off with the title track, Is This It? Very simple, lo-fi production. I think it's evident immediately on on how uh, ticky-tacky the drums sound. Um, There's a chiming uh, guitar figure on the rhythm guitar. There's a really bouncy bass line. And it sounds kind of like... Kind of hungover, but kind of funny. It's like a dirtbag romance. Can't you see I'm trying? I don't even like it. I just lied to get to your apartment. Now I'm staying there just for a while. I can't think because I'm just way too tired. Is this it? Is this it? Is this it? How do you feel about the opener, Greg? (laughs) Most important opener of the 2000s. Uh, Are we talking about Fever to Tell? Am I... Missing something? Um, this is it. Uh, is this it? Um, so full of I, shit. Hey, thanks. Uh, another great New York band. Um, <laughs> debut debuting in the two thousands. Um, yeah, this song is uh, good. It, it immediately reminded me of the Pixies because of that uh, chiming guitar rift. Um, right. And, Sounds like uh, where's my mind or something. Yeah. Right. And. Uh, I, I think it's mostly uh, good. You know, the only qualm I have with it, I think, is is um, in, in antagonism with the sort of thesis of the record um, compositionally, which is that it doesn't seem to uh, come to a head in, in a sort of moment. Um, so I agree that this this album and the song in particular, they're not very dynamic, both in a uh, in a sonic sense, but even in a compositional sense. It feels like it's supposed to culminate into a moment of release that doesn't come. Um, that can be refreshing from time to time, uh, but with with this record being a lot of that, that became a challenge for me. Well, I think when we like the compositionally, the song is about this sense of like disappointment, right? Like, is this really it? Uh, so I think the idea that we arrive at our big chorus and he's just sort of intoning blankly over the same one and four chords, like, is this it? Is this it? I think there's something appropriate about that, at least from a songwriting standpoint. But what I would say is I hear an empathy in what he's doing. There's always, it's as if he's sort of rolled out of bed, his eyes are half awake, and he's got this goofy grin on his face. Like, he's talked his way into this girl's bed, and now he's staying there. (laughs) He's not leaving. A one-night stand that turned into, like, can't I just stay for a few more days? I'm trying to get my shit together. 
there's something very like warm hearted and funny about it. And I think that goes a long way to making the record feel inviting. Like the strokes, like the white stripes are fun. Um, which is something I don't always get from indie music that comes after the strokes. Uh, there's something sleazy and silly and humorous about it. It seems to be a lot of one night stands that blow up in his face all over these records. Um, and so I think that's what I'm hearing is an introduction to the aesthetic, an introduction to the like the tone of his his sort of uh, persona on these records. And I think one of the things they strain against as they go on is that everything kind of fits like a glove when he's kind of telling these kind of dirtbag romance tales. And they're sort of once they try and get a, it isn't particularly emotional. It isn't particularly vulnerable. And I think they've certainly learned a lot of truck tricks over the years and they've be, they've experimented quite a bit. And I think a, a lot of times that stuff has paid off. But early on, this was the template that was set. And I think in, in places, as we move forward, we'll see that they kind of chafe against trying to change that dynamic of becoming more emotional, of becoming more sophisticated, um, but here the sound is in its infancy and what's coming naturally to them is these kind of tales of 20 something wastoids. Um, and I think at a track like this, it, it paints a picture for you like with very few lines. Uh, the next track on the record is the modern age, uh, starts off with a pounding, uh, pounding kind of Tom heavy beat and then moves into a snare on every beat, uh, kind of part as we move into the verse. Um, there's one guitar that's really staccato, kind of chiming, and the other is kind of chugging along. Uh, it, I think it's wistful. I think it's breezy. It's kind of a travelogue. Uh, leaving just in time, stay there for a while, rolling in the ocean, trying to catch her eye, work hard and saying it's easy, do it just to please me. Tomorrow will be different, so I pretend I'm leaving. I feel so different now. We trained at AVA. I wish you hadn't stayed. My vision's clearer now, but I'm unafraid. Flying overseas, no time to feel the breeze. I took too many varieties. So it's a little druggy. It's a little drunk. It seems to be about a vacation, you know. Uh, how does this one land for you, Greg? Just another stroke soup uh, <laughs> serving for you. Um. This one, it started to pick up for me. It's a little bit more urgent. Uh, there's a lazy guitar solo that I really like. Yeah, um, I like it too. It's a, it's a, a little bit more fun and a little bit more inviting for me. Um, I, th- I think like with Is This It, um, I, I, I think I agree with your assessment as to why it might be sort of um, compressed. Um uh, emotionally, but like, I guess if I were to feel, um, how would I put it? If I were to feel, um, sort of despondent in the way that it is, this it is, uh, describing, I would then get a sense of desperation. Like I would want more. And it feels like that song doesn't really ask for more. Um, but then you have the contrast of like the modern age where I think it, it's a little bit more engaged and a little bit more invested um, uh, in, in the sort of uh, emotional exploration. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I still don't think it's like it's not a, trying to be a song of it's not sophistication poetry, and depth. But, 
Yeah. Right. Yeah, but it but it is um, I think more present. And so I, I I like it. Well, uh I think I already know that you're going to think Soma is fucking filler. As much as I love that song, Soma is kind of a a drugalogue or a recounting of Aldous Huxley's A Brave New World. But I think one of the emblematic tracks on the record is Barely Legal. Uh, It's a pretty good example of how much work the Strokes can do with just a one and a four chord. Um, It's interesting you point out that you like that guitar solo. I think this one has a pretty cool bouncy guitar solo, too. And I think what's interesting about the lead playing on the record is you basically got this band that's kind of playing like new wave inspired bass lines. So it it feels very much like the cure or new order for a lot of the kind of chuggy eighth note, very like tight, succinct. But then the guitar solos feel like Chuck Berry, like some kind of demented kind of pentatonic thing. And I think there's a real dissonance between those two things. It's kind of pleasant. Yeah, I don't. Is that something you notice? This is kind of going to, I feel like there's probably a better way to say this without it sounding so condescending. It's not, I really don't mean it to be, but like in listening to the strokes, I think I understand you're writing a lot more. And I find this often when we, when we listen to music that you like, um, sometimes I would find that you would do these guitar solos that sounded like really sloppy and I knew you could do better. And I, like, I didn't understand (laughs) like what you were going for. Um, but I, but I think I get it now. Um, that and like these <laughs> supposed telephone voice, um, as they yes. put their vocals through the amps, guitar amps, instead of through a, a, um, equalized PA or something. Um, you can yeah. quite literally in the intro to our podcast, listen to me in 2005, pretending to be Julian Casablancas with a telephone voice. Uh, in a garage, doing a garage rock song. So yes, that was certainly influential on me. Barely legal. Uh, it's uh, Casablancas would say of the song, "Barely legal" kind of makes me cringe a little bit. I get it. It's sassy and it's youthful, uh, and I don't judge it or think about it. But these days, I make what I feel I like. Uh, I want to hear. Um, so the narrative, uh, uh, the title kind of gives away the the narrative here. I I didn't take no shortcuts. I spent the money that I saved up. Mama running out of luck, but like my sister, don't give a fuck. I want to steal your innocence. To me, my life, it doesn't make sense. These strange manners, I love them so. Why don't you wear your new trench coat? I want to turn you down. I just want to turn you around. You ain't never had nothing I wanted, but I want it all. I just can't figure out nothing. And altogether, it went well. We made pretend we were best friends. Then she said... Oh, you're a freak. They ordered me to make mistakes. Together again, like in the beginning. It all works out somehow in the end. The things we did, the things we hide. But for the record, it's between you and I. And yes, he's talking about an 18-year-old. Uh, and he's probably 20, year old, 20, 20 years old at that point. So it's not particularly scandalous. But it is kind of a... There's a little bit of machismo in there. Like, I don't need you. I just want to turn you around. It's not quite like... Guns and Roses level misogyny or anything, <laughs> but it you know he sounds like a like a twenty year old kind of doofus a little bit. Yeah, I, I think that like uh, you know I, I don't judge things like this in quite the same way because again he's probably around twenty and when describing an eighteen year old and also like um to a certain extent like I was kind of a nice guy like uh, I wasn't as um uh, um. I don't know. 
not quite like I didn't feel sorry for myself or anything, but I, but I always tried to, uh, as a teenager, be polite. Um, but I, I think I was being dishonest with myself that I didn't have some rude thoughts and, and, uh, some, um, you know, young, young boys are kind of assholes. <laughs> it's and like, yeah. so it is what it is. I think it's, uh, uh it, um, inappropriate. But what depiction. I want to know is, is the song fun? Do you find this to be a fun, enjoyable pop, pop rock gem? Yeah, it's okay. Or is I mean, it... the, the tracks two through four, uh, modern age, Soma, barely legal. I think they all sort of blend, uh, for me. Um, it's probably the way that uh, you know people hear the white stripes. They'll probably say like a lot of the songs sound the same. That's that's what I'm getting from those those. So tracks. when you listen to Back in Black, you're like, you know what the problem is with this band? They do the same shit over and over again. The same the same type of vocal, the same drum beat. You know, I wish this this ACDC band if they got a little more creative, they might get somewhere. I don't know. It's what, a distinctive I mean, well, sound, is my point. Like nobody sure. sounds quite like this, particularly at the time. Yeah, but I think like it, you you could sort of fairly say um, you could say the same thing about the White Stripes. Like I think there are some tracks that like uh, are in support of the sound, but like you know, like why would you take Seven Nation Army Light when there's Seven Nation Army Full Flavor as track number one? Um, <laughs> you know, so so some of these tracks, you know, like again, I, I think they sort of fall to the wayside of more. Um, powerful iterations well, like i like i'll tell you what th- there's a couple tracks that don't fall to the wayside and i'm glad you bring up seven nation army because these songs are right up there with that one let's talk about last night yes last night she said oh baby i feel so down oh you turn me on when i feel left out so i turned around oh baby i don't care no more i know this for sure i'm walking out that door and see people they don't understand Girlfriends, they can't understand. Grandsons, they can't understand. And on top of this, I ain't ever going to understand. Last night, she said, dot, dot, dot. Uh, most of this song is one long chorus. And I I suspect you could play Spot the Reference here because this is a dead ringer for Tom Petty's American Girl. And I commend Tom Petty for not suing the Strokes. Like he did to that poor English singer, uh, Sam Smith. What a dick. Oh. Come on, Tom Petty. He was on his no, way to I think death Tom Petty. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> double time drums, a double time drums, a chiming, interlocking arrangement of two electric guitars, a shouty, gravelly croon. Uh it's humorous. It's very silly. It's uh it's another breakup song, courtesy of Mr. Casablancas. Is this song fun, Greg? Do you want to wave your hands in the air and sing along? Yeah, it, it gets pretty close. This is definitely one of my like standouts. Like, um, like a lot of times when I'm listening to the music as a sort of a research proposal for these podcasts, sometimes it starts yeah. to kind of fall off a, a little bit. And, it's clinical, um, yeah. But uh, uh, it, I perked up when I heard last night. I thought... Um, I think what really does it for me is that the vocals feel less aloof than than the rest of the record. Like there's there's some there's some um, more obvious effort here. Um, I do like the aloofness, broadly speaking, but uh, I just I, I think it makes the contrast of something that is a little bit more dynamic and a little bit more um, 
concerted in its efforts, it, those things stand out more. Um, well, and I know that last night was never a top 40 single or anything, but I think last night is the reason this band plays stadiums with the Red Hot Chili Peppers as an opening act. Uh, it's infectious. It's bubblegum. It's fun. It's funny. Uh, the other one I think that was one of the singles that really stands out and it's in this same kind of double time drum mode is someday it's got a syncopated kind of chicken scratch guitar kind of thing going on. It's got a mere, like the melody in the chorus is being played on the guitar as he sings it, which I never get tired of. It's very sing song, follow the bouncing ball. Um, it's bleary eyed, but it's optimistic and, uh, there's a little bit of folly of youth and regret and sort of like poor self image, but it's all wrapped around his kind of smirk. Um, when I was young, when we was young, oh man, did we have fun always promises. They break before they're made sometimes, sometimes. And now my fears, they come to me in threes, uh, say fate, my friend, you say the strangest things I find sometimes. Oh, Maya says I'm lacking in depth. I will do my best. You say you want to stand by my side, darling, your head's not right. I see I see alone we stand, together we fall apart. Yeah, I think I'll be all right. I'm working so I won't have to try so hard. Tables they turn sometimes. Oh, someday, no, I ain't wasting no more time. I don't know. Uh, that In particular, that line, like, I'm working so I don't have to try so hard. I mean, that's <laughs> that's that's beautiful. It's so dumb. Uh, I I generally think this is good, dumb, fun in the Strokes mold. Uh, it's it's there's a sort of like like drunk lounge singer quality to the way he intones some of this stuff. Uh, the idea of somebody uh, a a a potential uh, romantic dalliance saying that he lacks depth is funny. Uh, <laughs> what twenty year old loser doesn't lack depth? Um. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is the soundtrack to a certain uh, audience's youth, and uh, it it self-consciously is kind of nostalgic, even as it's being made. So, yeah, this would be one of the one of the few tracks that I would I would tend to highlight here as being kind of undeniable. Is it undeniable to your ears, though, Greg? That would be the question. Yeah, I think this is uh, an all timer. Like, I I want to put this on a playlist. you know, to, for running in celebration, you know, whatever it like, it's, sure. it's, um, backyard barbecue. It, it, yeah. Well, maybe even something more fun than that. I, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's kind of got like a swing to it that I, that I like. Um, and I, I like the, yeah, yeah, sort of. Yeah. But like, it's not, I don't, it's not that as rigid. I don't, for whatever reason, I can never get into rockabilly. Um, it sounds to me like early Elvis kind of drums, you know? Like Hound Dog or something that, um, um, you know, a little bit of swing in there. Mm. Yeah, I it's it's a lot of fun. I like the little breakdown, even though they don't really do anything with it. Um, but at least it, it, I don't know. It feels like um, it feels like this could be like a really great um, like movie moment. Um, yeah. Sometimes it sometimes the song just feels like it would fit in a really great movie, and and. Uh, uh, that always to me is a sign that I'm along for the ride. Uh, the other one, the other single that we haven't talked about is hard to explain. 
definitely a candidate for my favorite Stroke song. Uh, it starts off with this very memorable drum part that sounds nearly like a, a drum machine is playing it. The um, ga, um, um, ga, um, ga, it ga, must um. be. And then we, huh? Is it not a drum machine? It sounds. It's not a drum machine. No. That's wild. It must. Uh, maybe it's like distortion or there's something about it that just it feels like like a like something. It sounds very rigid. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. It's wild. That's what I love about it. And then we get into these sort of eighth notes on guitar. We're getting these kind of chiming chords on one rhythm guitar and this sort of really kind of kind of beguiling strange melody on the other guitar. We're getting these kind of weird suspended chords because of the strange shapes they're using. Uh, so the bass is really holding down what the chord sequence is. Um, it's a really sing-song chorus. Uh, uh, hugely memorable. You know, I miss the last bus. I take the next train. I try, but you see, it's hard to explain. I say the right thing, but act the wrong way. I like it right here, but I cannot stay. Uh, it's kind of a, you know, hugely, I could sing along with that all day. It's kind of, what it reminds me of is like the dog ate my homework, like romantic excuses. Uh, it's again, it's kind of a sleazy doomed romance. Uh, I was an honest man, asked her for the phone, tried to take control. We share some ideas, all obsessed with fame, says we're all the same. He says he can't decide. I shake my head and say everything's just great. Uh, I mean, I don't know what it is, but I think that those some of those suspended chord shapes make for really complicated melodic constructions. Um, I think if you just played this on acoustic guitar with one one instrument, it it might sound strange. Uh, but the way that they're kind of mixing together those elements feels pretty distinctive to me. Uh, how did how did this one fare for you? Not quite as much fun, but is it memorable? Yeah, it was definitely more memorable. Um, and it, yeah, it was pretty good. My, you know, usually I don't care about this sort of thing, especially coming from a white stripes perspective. But like sometimes the bass sounds like it's doing something so fun. I wish there was a little bit more fidelity with the bass. Um, because like e- even when I try to EQ it, uh, it, the bass gets lost in the mix. Um, sure. I, I think there are limits. Like I, I, I do like lo-fi when it sort of changes the character of something, uh, but when it just yeah. really gets in, in the way of uh, presenting something, um, then it's sort of a, a self-injurious uh, issue for me. Um, you know, interestingly enough, you point out the bass. Nikolai, the bassist, has said that at, at various points that he was worried they were going to get copyright struck for some of the bass lines because he, he ripped them completely from The Cure, which makes sense because they're all, in some of these songs, I mean, you say you stole it from The Cure, but, I mean, there there's only two chords in the song. <laughs> so sure. <laughs> that, that sort of new wave style one and four chord thing they do so many times uh, I don't know. This is one of the more inventive bass lines on the record, I think. Uh, as a chord sequence, it, it feels really fresh. Uh, why don't we talk about Greg? I mean, there are other songs which I love, and I don't know how many of these you're going to care about. When I started, this is novel in the sense that it has kind of a bouncy reggae-influenced bass line, almost. It's got kind of a pensive chorus. This is one of the few songs on the debut that feels less fun and kind of more... Um, it's it, There's a darker undercurrent starting to creep in around this one and trying your luck. 
Um, it seems to be kind of still an amusing portrait of domestic strife, but domestic strife nonetheless. Won't decide, but he won't debate. Says, thanks, my friend. Thought it was too late. Oh, why, oh, why? I don't know. So you think things move pretty fast down here. Well, wait, my dear, till you look up there. Oh, maybe someday you'll know. Had a second kid. Was an early night. Gotta be well-dressed because he hates to fly. Oh, loves his job. Takes it home. Come on, tell me. Does he warm the room when he comes? Or does he know how to leave when it gets cold? It sounds to me like a like a sort of minimalist portrait of a marriage, uh, of kind of a, a suburban marriage. Um, does this one strike you as memorable? I'm not sure this is one of the most memorable ones. I mean, it's memorable to me in the sense that um, it drove me nuts. Like, I, this is when I started to notice, uh, like, how um, irritating it is to have drums that don't do anything. Like, I think it takes uh, about like a, a minute and a half in before there's like a little fill that the drummer does. But otherwise, right. it sound it sounds like a one bar loop going through the whole thing. Um, yes. And I don't. I don't know. It, it, you know, again, drumming drum or bass sometimes like, I think it's most effective when it feels like it's, it's like in the pocket with the mix. It's like, it's, it doesn't stand out on its own, but it also doesn't, um, distract, but here it's just so distracting. Cause I just find it's so bizarre. It sounds like it's almost like a demo that just didn't get finished because of the drumming. Okay. For this next one, I want to ask you about, Greg, I only have one question for you about it. Okay. okay. For the track, New York City Cops. Oh, I should. Can sorry, you? Let me, I don't, I didn't have that on my playlist. The version that I had don't, didn't oh, have Oh, you that. haven't heard that one. Oh, shoot. So we have the 9-11 censored version of Is This It on Greg's I guess computer. so. All right. Well, then let's talk about the closer, Trying Your Luck. Okay. This is probably the most rip-roaring track on the record. It's. It's about as rocking as they get. Uh, um, take it or leave it. Punchy standard time drums. Uh, there's this kind of chromatic descending sequence in the chorus. The he's going to let you down, let you down, let you down bit. Um, the vocal is more shouty than most of the other songs. It's one of the few tracks where he sounds angry and frustrated. And it seems pretty clear that this is kind of a breakup song. Uh, leave me alone. I'm in control. I'm in control. Um, well, on the uh, on the minds of other men, I know she was. I said, take it or leave it. Take it or leave it. Oh, he's going to let you down. How do you feel about the strokes in up-tempo rock mode? Um, I don't know if I found it as convincing. I don't know that I do either. Yeah. Um, I enjoy this track. I think it's still got pretty memorable guitar parts. And I think that chorus is pretty memorable. But I don't think this is what they're best at. Uh, I'm glad there's variety on the record because it is kind of all cut from the same cloth. So getting an iteration of that sound that has a different flavor, I think, is a is a smart choice. Um, I know why it's here. But I think it's worth noting that this is not what necessarily comes natural to them. So, uh, the Strokes would do a couple of memorable things on the tour for this record. Um, uh, They play MTV's $2 Bill concert. They do a series of concerts in New York and Detroit with the White Stripes. Uh, They open for the Rolling Stones on on many of their North American tour dates. 
Um, they are asked to perform on the MTV Awards uh, and decline uh, because it was supposed to be kind of a battle of the bands. And that is why the MTV uh, Video Music Awards featured uh, the Hives and the Vines. The Strokes were asked and they declined. Uh, the tour did get uh, did get kind of messy. Um, Julian, around this time, this is one of the people in their, on their team, Dave Gottlieb, said, around this time, Julian punched John Voigtman, who worked at RCA's International Division at a French TV show because he didn't want to perform in front of a live audience. That really happened. Um, Nick Valencia comments that there were instances they were all on a lot of drugs at the time. Uh, it was mainly, he says, it was mainly clonopin. I mixed that with a lot of other stuff and it put me in a really bad place. I was blacking out and being an asshole and not remembering it. I, uh, they're also wrecking hotel rooms. They got a $7,000 bill from a hotel in Las Vegas. <laughs> uh, uh, they also got a huge offer for the songs to be used in commercials. Uh, Dave Gottlieb says, we got a request from Heineken for Hard to Explain or Last Night, and I believe the offer was $600,000. So they're, uh, they are a going concern at the time, and eventually they have to go in to record the follow-up. Immediately after touring for Is This It, the Strokes returned to the studio they hired Radiohead producer Nigel Godrich, but fired him, according to the band, when they couldn't work together. Godrich said of the failed co- collaboration, the problem there was that me and Julian Casablancas are too similar. We're both control freaks. He wanted to do it his way. I wanted to do it my way. And obviously, that's the point of me being there. And I'm saying, well, why am I here if you're not prepared to try and do things the way I want to do it? We got on great. It was just one of those laughable things where it didn't work. I wanted them to change, and they didn't. Uh, uh, Steve Ralbowski of RCA Records says, I like to go and visit the bands on tour stops. It gives us a chance to catch up and have a late afternoon afternoon or evening before the show to kind of go over the laundry list of stuff to do with whatever part of the the cycle they're in. I met them on the road in Portland. I wanted to initiate a conversation about the next record. What about somebody other than Gordon, Gordon who produced the debut? Knowing full full well that they and he would want to control the proceedings, and frankly, they kind of earned the right to do it their own way. So we're having this conversation at a little bar, having a little smoke break outside. I mention Rick Okasik of the Cars because I know Albert loved them. Then we get back inside to the table, Julian sat back down and said, what about this guy, Nigel Godrich? Nigel Godrich could do no no wrong. He worked with Beck. He worked with Radiohead. And Julian said, you mean that guy from Radiohead? Would he work with us? And I said, yeah, we can ask. Um, Steve Relbowski goes on to say the tryout lasted 10 days. They worked on Meet Me in the Bathroom and one one or two other songs. It was just so hard going method-wise for Nigel. He wanted to record a certain way, and Julian wanted to do it a different way. Um, Nigel was more, let's record it as a band, and we'll subtract and add later. Julian wanted to do every instrument individually recorded and then layered, so the methods were conflicting. Um, 
Gordon Raphael, who they eventually did the record with, who recorded Is This It, said, Recording the drums, Julian said, I really like your drum sound, and can we work on the hi-hat? Julian told me that Nigel had said, Julian, it's a hi-hat. A hi-hat is a hi-hat. Now, I know from working with Julian that for him, a hi-hat is like working with a seller of exotic wines from all over the world. Do you want this one? Do you want maybe that one? Smell the bouquet. A hi-hat for him was worth days of tweaking. And Ni- and that's all Nigel said. And the next day we were on the phone. Right after that, I was flying to London to start recording. I don't know if that's true, but that's what they told me. Poor Nigel, St- Steve says. He was in a state. He didn't want to let anybody down, but he felt like maybe they're not ready. Maybe I'm not the right guy. We had lunch in Soho one day, and he said, I just don't think I can do it. He was really emotional, really upset about it. And I said, it's not going to work. You gave it your best shot. So I just want to, like, frame that because that is that is fucking crazy. So they go <laughs> in to work with probably the most expensive and best regarded producer in rock music, the guy who records Radiohead, and it turns into a complete mess just like they did with Gil Norton. Like... For whatever reason, <laughs> this business about like wanting to control everything and they can't try it a different way and we got to tweak the hi-hat for days, uh, that's just comical to me that, number one, that they had this opportunity and they couldn't, they couldn't try it out. Um, so they do record the record and it comes out in 2003. They record it much in the same way as they did the debut. Um, I think it sounds overall a little more high fidelity and the record kicks off with the opener, whatever happened. Uh, they're kind of playing 16th notes on a bass. The interlocking guitars are playing, are kind of weaving in and out of each other again. We get this kind of busy off kilter drum part. Uh, there's a very shouty gravelly tone to his voice on this. Uh, it sounds anguished. It sounds anxious. Uh, it sounds miserable. Uh, and he intones, I want to be forgotten. I don't want to be reminded. You said, please don't make this harder. No, I won't yet. I wait and tell myself life ain't chess, but no one comes in. And yes, you're alone. You don't miss me. How did you feel about this as an opener, Greg? What kind of taste does this leave in your mouth? <laughs> Sour, uh, yeah, perhaps? Uh, yeah, a bit. I, I was a little bit conflicted because... Um, I do think that this is a more dynamic opening than Is This It, which I thought that I wanted. But uh, if this is the alternative, I'm, you know, not as uh, on board with what what I thought I wanted. Uh, Maybe it's because of the sourness of um, the sentiment here. Like, Is This It maybe is um, a little bit more um, still yet open-minded. Uh, where whatever happened uh, feels bitter to me. Um, I think they're trying to throw you off. I think they're trying to um, do something as an opener, as a statement, but this is a weird one to choose. I personally think it's well, really well written for a stroke song. Like everything is competent. Um, but I would say this, uh, I'm not sure exactly what effect they were going for. By saying, I want to be forgotten on the follow-up to one of the most acclaimed records of of modern modern recording. Like, 
what exactly are you are we getting at here? Uh, is it that uh, he feels constrained by the pressures of fame and uh, feels like he's losing his authenticity in the major label system? Because I doubt it. I don't think that's what they're trying to say. So I think the effect was to try and start somewhere unusual. Much in the way Is This It is a pretty muted choice for an opener. This is a pretty muted choice for for a record like this, at least thematically. I think maybe the true opening standout, uh, the first standout on the record is Reptilia, the one you mentioned in our introduction. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about Reptilia, Greg. What is it about this one that stands out to you? Because I... All the I like all these songs, so I don't know why people pick Reptilia as the one. Um, that's a great question. Um, I, I I think because uh, it's a building song. Um, it starts with that that bass. Um, and very then, very kind of two chords, simple stuff. Yeah, there's something about the like. Um, I. I think in most of their other music, the riffs that are played are sort of uh, for color, whereas this feels like a riff forward song. Um, yeah, it was. You're talking uh, about the vo- octaves part. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's yeah, it's simple, but uh, it's sort of like in vogue with um, uh, like date with the night uh, or um, sure. Uh, Dead leaves and dirt, you know, whatever. You know, this riff songs were um, at least in the music that I was trafficking in, like the gold standard. Um, and so, um, I don't know. It, it kind of it just it, it feels distinct, and they they leave some room in there um, for the the. It's parts more to, dynamic. I'll give it that. It certainly yeah. has more dynamics. Yeah, and it stops to do some like other riff work. Um, I just it's um, I I don't know that I know it from Guitar Hero, but I understand why a song like this would be in Guitar Hero. It feels um, like a Guitar Hero kind of song, and I think that was kind of fun in the in the uh, early two thousands. Um, this sounds surly. It sounds paranoid. It sounds like the worst night out on the town you've ever had. Um. He seemed impressed by the way you came in. Tell us a story. I know you're not boring. I was afraid that you would not insist. You sound so sleepy. Take this. Now leave me. Now every time that I look at myself, I thought I told you this world is not for you. The room is on fire as she's fixing her hair. You sound so angry. Just calm down. You found me. Yeah, the night's not over. You're not trying hard enough. Our lives are changing lanes. You ran me off the road. The wait is over. I'm now taking over. You're no longer laughing, and I'm not drowning fast enough. That sounds like a miserable hang. I got to be real with you, Greg. But as a song, it is certainly an evolution of the the sound of the first record. It's it's more complicated. It's got more uh, dynamics. It it certainly has. I love the fact that the drums start out the chorus. Uh, there's no. It's drumless, and then the drums come in. And then the drums transition from a standard beat to snare on every beat. Um, I think that's really effective. That's the kind of the secret weapon of the of the track. Uh, I am pretty partial to the other single on the record, twelve fifty one. Twelve fifty one is sort of a fun, sleazy kind of 
sex and romance song. Julian Casablancas described 1251 as about the moment right before you fuck. <laughs> um, the lead guitar, again, uh, mirrors the vocal melody and the verses, the talk to me, I'm bored now section. Um, I think the lyrics are really silly in a, in a fun way. Uh, we could go and get 40s. Fuck going to that party. Oh, really? Your folks are away now. All right, let's go. You convinced me. Kiss me now that I'm older. I won't try to control you. Friday nights been, have been lonely. Take it slow, but don't warn me. Uh, I mean, it's just kind of like a, it kind of sounds like the cars, like just what I needed. The, there's no, the synth, the quote unquote synthesizers are actually guitars. That's a really cool tone for a guitar. It feels like right out of just what I needed. Um, yeah, this is one of the f- most fun stroke songs I can think of. Does this feel like a highlight to you? Mm. Feels it's, like. It's kind of, yeah, like I, I think there's some ideas in here that work really well. I do like the the guitar tones. Um, I guess I just like coming off of Reptilia, I just wish it was a little bit more um, dynamic and just had a, like a moment of power. It, it kind of leans back further to more like this is it sort of um I think droning anticlimax. Yeah. And um, interesting. And so yeah, you know, like um the, the chorus I think is pretty good. I just wish that like I don't know, even if it was if it just did the loud thing on that chorus. The chorus is pretty good. I just You know, sometimes you go to an art museum with uh with somebody and you show them a Monet or you show them a Picasso and you say like, have a look, what do you think? And they're like, I don't know, I'm tired, can we go? And you're just left there saying like, yeah, I guess we can go. You know, pe- <laughs> some people aren't meant to appreciate fine art. That's kind of how I feel talking to you about 1251, Greg, I can't lie. I mean, I don't know what more they can give you uh, other than their lives. They could they could um, self-immolate in front of you on stage if that would make you happy. But for me, 1251 does the trick. Let's talk about my other favorite song on the record. It's late in the record. It's The End Has No End. This is probably my most played Strokes song. This is a song I return to quite a bit. Um, there's something aching about it. It's certainly a much uh, softer touch. Uh, if, if there is a moment on either of these two records where there's a little bit of vulnerability, I think this would be an example of it. Um, there's a chiming lead guitar. There's a palm muted rhythm guitar. The chord sequence is is sort of haunting in a way. Um, he wants to take it easy. He wants to relax. Said, I can do a lot of things, but I can't do that. Two steps forward and three steps back. Won't you take a walk outside? Oh, no. Can't you find some other guy? Oh, no. 19631. One one nine six nine. What's that sound? Oh no! Keeping down the underground. The end has no end. The end has no end. The end has no end. It is not easy to make unhappiness sound interesting, but I would tend to think this would be a pretty good example of it. the The things that he wants to express in the opener, that sort of enemy, that sort of uh, oh, what's the fancy word for depression, Greg? Uh, Ennui. Uh, the ennui that he wants to express when he intones repeatedly sounding like a a two pack a day smoker. I want to be forgetting forgotten. I think that's the, 
the tone he's striking in this one, but he does it with a softer touch. I, I think he sounds kind of exhausted and kind of er- anxious at the same time. Um, I think it's really effective. Yeah, I like this uh, uh, quite a bit. Um, I, there's um, there are moments. And that's what I look for. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it sounds the like it's going to be that in the lead. It sound great. Those yeah, it's not. It sounds like it might hang out for too long on the the synthy sort of arpeggios that are, I assume, again, our guitar. Uh, but then yep. all of a sudden, it starts to pick up, and the the drums get into a double time sort of building beat. Um, and uh, when it when it sounds like he's like just about to fall off the track, he starts yelling. Um, yeah, and so uh, he goes up an octave. Yeah, yeah, that is so, really interesting. It's Okay, so we're on the same page. That makes me happy, Greg. But what do you okay. think of probably the most critically praised track of the of the record, Under Control? This is almost a Stax Motown kind of song. What did you feel about this flavor of the Strokes? Uh, yeah, I thought it was uh, um, uh, pretty good because I, I appreciated the space that they had created again for those yeah. uh, those those guitars, the the drumming. Um, is it, it's like on the edge of being a little bit too monotonous yet. There are some little changeups that happen. He's opening the hi hat a little bit. Um, I don't, I, I I think it's pretty good. I'm surprised to hear that it's the most critically acclaimed, uh, cause I, I think when when the record came out, everybody talked about this as a huge breakthrough. It's essentially like, I remember people asking like, wouldn't it be cool if the strokes covered my girl by the temptations? Assuming that it would kind of sound like this, you know, kind of a crooned Motown style song. Uh, This is a mode they return to quite a few times in their later records, but I'm not sure if they ever bettered this particular iteration of it. I don't want to waste your time. I don't want to change your mind. I don't want to change the world. I just want to watch it go by. I just want to watch you go by. You worked hard, darling. We don't have no control. We're under control. You you are young, darling, for now, but not for long, under control. It, certainly not complicated, but I think there's something kind of beautiful about that particular soul-inflected melody over those kind of really complicated chords, the suspended chords they're getting by having the two guitars playing kind of weird parts together. Uh, I think it's beautiful. Uh, the other genre experiment on the record is... Uh, Between Love and Hate, which has a chorus that very much recalls reggae music. Uh, The bass line is particularly bouncy. Uh, There are some interesting kind of picked out arpeggios. Uh, They do not sound like synths. Uh, Again, we get a very dissonant Chuck Berry influenced guitar solo. But I got to admit, Greg, I'm not sure if Strokes Reggae is the flavor is as successful an experiment as I might have hoped. Yeah, I didn't really care for this one. How do you really feel about the Strokes one? doing reggae? Yeah, uh, yeah, not for me. I think part of the problem <laughs> is like the the vocals um, don't change as much as like the instrumentation does. Um, like I think if it's going to have a sort of a bounciness to it, um, doing the sort of uh, uh, sleepy legato vocals um, just doesn't fit very well with that because it isn't until sure. the chorus, which doesn't sound like the verse at all. 
um, that it makes any sense. Uh, it's got kind of a cool uh, bluesy solo. Um, yeah, I do, I do like that solo. That is, it's again, it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb, but that's kind of what I like about it. <laughs> what did you yeah. think of the mid album track, Meet Me in the Bathroom? Well, it's kind of. Um, it's it's one I, of those tracks where we get a lot of major seventh chords. It the musically it's pretty pretty weird, pretty interesting. But is it totally successful? Um, I think that's an interesting question. It sort of reminds me of like um, if uh, if oh what's that band um, Knights of Sidonia? Who am I thinking of? Muse. Uh, Muse. It kind of reminds me of like if Muse was like less technically proficient as musicians, um, like what they would come up with. Christ. What? Uh, How's that? I, I would say this sounds like what it is, which is a track that was written on tour. It sounds like the work of a band who has been playing Is This It night after night. And this is kind of like them turning on that machine, turning on that particular version of their sound. And this is what comes out because this is one of the sleaziest tracks on the record. Most of this record is a much more uh, subdued, uh, not subdued. That's not the right word. Uh, depressive. He sounds more depressed on this record than on the first one. It doesn't sound quite as breezy. And although he returns to the subject of romantic dalliances and disasters uh, like he did on the first record, things sound much more pained to me. Um this one sounds like the same kind of like lover man shtick that he had on the first one. Like meet me in the bathrooms. That, that's what she said. I don't mind. It's true. Never was on time. I once was mine. Well, that was a long time ago, darling. I don't mind. Yeah, they were just two fucks in lust. Oh, baby, that just don't mean much. Oh, yeah, we train. You trained me not to love after you taught me what it was. I mean. It's another one night stand song. It's it's not quite as fun as some of the ones on the debut. Um I still think it's really competent. Like I would put this up there as a seven and a half out of ten or an eight out of ten stroke song. Um, but for whatever reason, midway through the record it doesn't stand out. I, I am curious how you feel about the closer, I can't win. This feels like the most obvious nod to uh last night. To last night. Yeah, because it's got the double-time drums. It's called I Can't Win. How did you feel about that one? Uh, uh, oh, oh, uh, the other, okay, yeah. Um, I I liked that it was uh, uh, um, a little bit cleaner because, you know, the, the rest of the uh, tr- tracks, more often than not, sound more anguished. Um, yeah. yeah, I would say that this one could have probably fit just as well on the, on the last record. Um, I don't think that necessarily gives it like a full score though. Um, because there's a bit of a sour taste to this one as well. I would say good try. We don't like it. Good try. We won't take that shit. Oh, I can't win. Yeah. That's your um, rousing chorus. It still feels like aloof in the way that the first record did and that this one does not. Um, right. They're, they're, like it's it's sort of uh, like um, a little bit more resigned than necessarily um, anguished or pained in the way that you were describing the other tracks. Um, I mean, I kind of appreciate the Empire Strikes Back quality of this record compared to the first one. Uh, 
It's a little jaded. It's a little tired. I think basically their songwriting chops are in shape uh, for the most part. Um, but I got to admit, like, when I'm following the journey of this record, this record, or, uh, the band sometimes betrays, gives you the sense of fun in the music, and then Julian comes in with his kind of surly uh, outlook. And it, it, I think the songs are great. I still want to hear them. But I think I hear something happening in the tone that betrays a certain uh, weariness creeping in around the edges. And I think this is a pretty good example of that. They've got a double-time, last-night-style instrumental. But what he's bringing is uh, his sort of, like, kind of fucked-up perspective to it. I think it's an interesting combination. Maybe not as winning as last night, which is a total bubblegum kind of standout. But as a closer, I think it's pretty effective. I wonder what would have happened if we had swapped the opener and the closer, if this had been the first song on the record. I think that could have made more sense. I, I like. I think it's a decent enough song. I just don't. I don't. It doesn't feel like a closer to me. Sure. Well, uh, this is where we will pause our journey with the Strokes until our next episode. Uh, where we leave the Strokes is the critical reception of this record was uh, largely that it sounded too much like the first. Uh, so rather than seeing this as sort of like a, a part two or a se- or a worthy sequel, it was viewed as the Strokes don't have any other new ideas. They've basically rewritten the first record, which I think put the band in a bit of a creative kerfuffle as to how they would proceed next. In the wake of this record, you would see the the Killers come to prominence. You would see. Other garage rock revival bands have successful outings as well. So uh, it was very much, uh, you could very much hold the, the Strokes responsible for kicking some of the door open for this kind of music. And now they are saying interlopers and bands that are influenced by their work sort of take the ball and run with it. Uh uh, while we will pause the narrative of the strokes here, Greg, on our on our show, we do a segment called Standout, Compout, Dropout, where we select one track from each record to send up for the ages to send to a first-time listener and one track to remove from the record to delete from memory. Starting with Is This It, what do you want to send up and what do you want to send down? Mm, I think, uh, for me, the, the most fun that I had with the record was Someday. Um, it, it felt distinct. It felt like I could, um, show this to anybody and they would get, uh, they could jump on and dance along with, and it's very inviting and warm. Um, I, I think it might be like, a my favorite, even a, between the two records. Um, as far as one to drop, um, I guess I'm going to say Soma. I just don't think it like really stands out uh, among um, the more subdued. Uh, I don't know. It just doesn't have a moment for me. Well, the one I'm going to send up is a real toss up because I like all the songs, but uh, <laughs> it would be probably if, if, if I met some strange alien who didn't know the strokes, I might send them last night. But uh, if they were the kind of music listener who already knows a lot of indie music, I would probably send them Hard to Explain. That might be my favorite. 
Uh, I think it's a really interesting musical palette. It's slightly more complicated than some of the other songs, like Barely Legal. Um, I really like that drum sound. I think it's just like beautiful to listen to. Uh, so that's the one I'm going to send up. It's tough to decide what to send off the record. Um, I think it's more or less uh, chocked full of great songs. There, there really isn't a bad song on it for me. If I was going to take one off, maybe I would take off um, Take It or Leave It. I think as a closer, like I see why it's on there, but I got to take something off. So <laughs> that's probably not the mode of the band that I like the most, that sort of gravelly, up-tempo rock and roll style. I probably prefer them in a little more melodic territory. As far as 2003's Room on Fire goes, Greg, what do you want to send up and what do you want to send down? It's interesting that they that the criticism was that this is too much like the last album. I would say relative to the their rigid composition of two guitars, a bass, drums, and, and a vocalist, um, right. there's sort of a, a limit on what you could do with that anyways, sonically. Um, and I think that relatively speaking, this was a different album, uh, different enough. Um, I would say it feels also kind of encumbered. Um, but, uh, but it is interesting as an evolution. Um, I, I would say Reptilia is, uh, I, I think the most distinct, uh, track on the record. I, I don't know that it feels a lot like the other things that uh, on these records, but, um, it's really good. It's sort of undeniable. One to get rid of, um, between love and hate. I, I don't think we talked about that song. Um, the reggae song. I, yes, we did talk oh, about that, it. The, oh, we did. See, there we go. I, I already forgot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess I didn't, I don't hear it as reggae. So when I was like passing through it, I don't know. It's just, it, it's sort it's of only the chorus that does the reggae thing. Okay. But the, but the, 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 it's sort of meandering, and um, the only thing I really like about it was the guitar solo, which again is sort of sure. derivative because it's trying to be sort of like a wankery blues solo, which I think is charming but um, not vital. Uh, as far as one to send to a first-time listener, I like basically all of the record, uh, but the one I like the most is maybe the end has no end. That's the one I come back to the most. Uh, but a, a close second would be under control. I think that's a really effective uh, attempt to, on on their part to write a ballad. Um, as far as one to take off, again, I find this most of this record really palatable, really impressive. But I I am also going to take off between love and hate as a genre exercise. It's 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 competent, but it's not nearly as distinctive as the rest of the record. So you've been listening to Down on High. We'll be back next week with two records, probably from the 2000s.